The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your kindness to draw us here today and give us a chance to sit before you as you teach us your word. And I pray that what you would bring from this is what we just sang about there, that you would be our vision. You would be what fills the windshield, what what controls our sight, what's, what's always before us. You. I can say those words, we can kind of give affirmation to them in our minds, but that's a supernatural work that you must accomplish, and so that's why we pray and ask you to do it. Will you make yourself our vision? And particularly, Lord, as we think about the subject here in this passage this morning, will you make yourself our vision as we face uh, life here in a world that is difficult, that in fact is a battlefield, as we face an enemy? We talk about this enemy today, Lord, but we want you to be our vision. We, we don't want to focus on the enemy. We want to focus on you. And so control this time this morning and, and make it helpful to us. Make it, uh, make it useful to the growth of your church and bring out of it you as our vision. That's our prayer. Please do that this morning for our good and for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Any fan of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries has a favorite story or two or three. I read them all growing up, and I've seen lots of different renditions of Sherlock Holmes in film and TV series and whatnot. You probably have two. The entire enterprise, it's big. Holmes and Dr. Watson there at 221B Baker Street, but really kind of touching on London and England and all of the rest of the world, the continent, even reaching into Asia. I loved all of that growing up, especially once I realized that a good bit of it was interconnected. The stories are written, if if you know them, the stories are written as if they each are one-offs. Holmes and Watson are just kind of living life there in their apartment, his apartment, and knock the door, and a mystery. And then a little bit later, another mystery, and sometime after that, another one. They're all kind of one-offs. But in time, Holmes discovers that there is something, someone, behind all these separate evils. Someone has a plan, a a very subtle one, very quiet. It's hard to notice it at first. It's a very patient plan. But suddenly then, at that point, you realize that the game moves up a level as Holmes and all the readers then try to figure out who, what's going on. Behind what's going on, what's going on? That makes Sherlock Holmes really interesting to me. And other series that work similarly. If you've seen Longmire on Netflix, you've seen the same sort of thing at work. That kind of thing really resonates with us. The, the, the story behind the story. We, we realize then, I've got to see the small part in light of the whole, and I've got to understand the whole if I'm going to understand the small. It, that really resonates with us, perhaps because that's really how real life really works. 
there is something going on behind what's going on. That little thing in your life and that little thing in your life are part of something about your life. I am not talking about any conspiracy theories. Not at all talking about anything related to any kind of conspiracy theory. What I'm talking about is what Peter is talking about now here at the end of the book of 1 Peter. I don't know which Sherlock Holmes story first mentions the name Moriarty, the evil mastermind, but this passage this morning is the first time that Peter writes the devil. And in so doing, he places all that we've seen in this book and all of our lives in a fascinating, sobering, larger context. Three weeks ago, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12, we saw Peter bring up this concept of fiery trial, difficulties that Christians face in this world and shouldn't be surprised by. It's the kind of stuff that he's been mentioning now throughout this entire book. Very, very often it comes up sufferings and afflictions and grievous trials and persecutions, all that coming at us because, chapter 1, verse 1, we are God's elect exiles in the world. Because we're God's elect, we're exiles in the world, and so all this stuff is going to come at us. We experience it. And then that section in chapter 4 there, especially verse 17, pointed out that God's using all that. The word we saw there was judgment, but you could also think of dis disciplining, uh, refining fire. God's using all that. That's, that's part of what's going on. But now this morning we get the rest of the story behind the story. That's what we're going to look at in verses 8 to 11, what's going on and how we are to respond to it. So let me read the passage and then draw out two observations from it. This is 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 8. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Two observations. Here's the first. Be alert to the real battle and be ready to fight it. Be alert to the real battle and be ready to fight it. Verse 18, verse 8, I'm sorry, begins with two commands. Be sober-minded. It's kind of get, get your wits about you. Wake up, realize this. It's the third time he said this in this letter, which kind of just by the repetition sort of implies that Christians can spend a fair bit of time not paying attention. And of unalert, sort of in a fog. So he says, be sober-minded. And secondly, be watchful, which is similar, but if it's a little bit different, it maybe has a bit more emphasis on what you do if you were sober-minded. 
awake and clued into what was going on, you'd be watchful because what's going on is something dangerous. You're being stalked by an enemy. One particular enemy behind all the other opponents and persecutors and oppressors and slanderers and revilers we've seen mentioned so far in this book. There's a whole world full of people out there that are, that are spread across a broad spectrum of, of beliefs and perspectives, and they all cause us an array of discomforts, fiery trials even, sometimes thoughtlessly, just purely incidentally or accidentally, and then at other times very deliberately and maliciously, and everything in between. All of that, it's all caused by flesh and blood out there, and none of them are our enemies. You have one enemy, really. One adversary in the end, the devil, who is a real being, a real spiritual being. Some of us don't think that, don't think about that. He's real. The chief of demons, their leader. Satan is his name. The liar whose native language is deceit and who is engaged constantly every moment of every day since he proudly rebelled against the one true God and was condemned. Ever since that moment, constantly he is at work to destroy God's good work and denigrate God's good name and character in any way that he possibly can, 24-7, 365. That's his deal. And in this case, that means you. You are his focus. Every single one of you, me included. We are part of God's good work. We carry God's good name. You're right in the middle of the bullseye. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The imagery is obvious. That's, that's a fierce beast of prey on the hunt, playing for keeps. Wake up. He's hunting you. Looking for someone to devour in a spiritual sense. The devil wants to attack people, tear them apart, and bring them to spiritual death to destroy us spiritually. That's what's going on behind all of what's going on in your life. In all the different trials and tribulations and difficult circumstances that we face, this is the true nature of the threat being leveled against us by our true adversary. The enemy is plotting, very patiently waiting and watching so as to then mount an assault on your soul to kill you spiritually. That is, to get you to say, to think, to believe, to maybe even to say out loud, but to, but to embrace enough. This 
God doesn't work for me. This Christian message, this Christian idea is not sufficient. It doesn't work anymore. His ways don't help me. And so as to get you then to turn away from dependence on God and to go off your own way, that's what he wants in you right now. And he'll use any opportunity that he can to attack you in that way. He may exploit the good gifts that God gives you. God gives good gifts, and, and he may exploit them to try to make, you know, like lure us into complacency and forgetfulness and, and lead us there by to kind of wander away from God. He'll do that. But more often, because of his nature, he is evil and malicious and destructive, a liar and a murderer. The tool he most instinctively reaches for is pain. That's, that's what he grabs first. That's what resonates with him most. He'll seek something that's evil and malicious and destructive, and, and he'll come at you in a way that makes you see pain and, and feel tribulation and sorrow and loss, or to fear coming pain and tribulation and sorrow and loss. He uses affliction, and that works so well against us because we are people who love comfort and ease. Which, by the way, is not a complete insult. Because we're made for rest. We're made to rest in ease and comfort. But we want it now, here, always. And so any threat to that really resonates with us. I mean, he, can, he can pull on that, he can use that to, to draw us to satisfy our passions and pursue pleasures and pursue ease apart from God in unrighteousness, in sin. And it feels so good and it brings about an end of temptation when we do. Well, of course it does. You realize this is one of, the, one of the, the common lies that we kind of repeatedly fall victim to. I fight, I feel the pressure, I feel the temptation, and I give in to it, convinced that now it's okay and good and right. No, no, no. You're rolling upstream against the world and you gave in. Now you're drifting towards the falls. Of course it feels easier. There's no, there's no pressure there, but you're moving towards the falls. Drifting with the current. That's his whole game to get us to just stop pursuing God and do what feels good. Let go of him and Step out of the narrow way into things that are much easier and much more pleasant. And the word will then approve and the world will befriend you as you leave God behind. That's what's going on. Or to put it another way, all of life really is like the book of Job. That's why Job is in the Bible, you realize. Because it's every believer's life. People throw things at us. Stuff happens. Sometimes it's stirred up by Satan. Sometimes not. He's a master opportunist. He'll capitalize on things that happen. We, we live around people who are themselves sinners. We live in a fallen world, and things happen. Some of it is directly provoked by him, but not all of it. Sometimes he just uses stuff. Things happen, and accidents happen, and health problems happen, and economic downturns happen, and Satan uses all of that, meaning it all for evil, 
for God's defamation and for our destruction. And God means it for good, for his honor and for our refinement, our sanctification. It's it's just like the book of Job. That's where we are. This perspective that I'm talking about here, that Peter is talking about here, is very important and helpful for us to get clear on. Because we tend to focus on the here and now. And we tend to think that the attack against us that threatens the here and now is the attack. What I mean is, something happens and my job is threatened, my health is threatened, my relationships, my possessions, or those of my loved ones. I I feel that attack, I look at it, I sense the danger, and I fear or fight for my job and my health and my possessions and my loved ones, my relationships and then feel a sense of of angst or unsettledness or foreboding if that struggle is not going well or if I lose, and maybe a sense of contentment if it feels okay. And I never realize that's just the context for the real fight. If, if, I, if I'm fighting up here, if I'm fighting for job and for health, and I think that's the struggle, then that's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm praying for. And I wonder, when I still die, why did God abandon me? You see, that, that's a problem that comes from this level only. When I lose my job and I lose my house, why did God not come through for me? That's not the fight. That's the context for the fight. We have to realize this. You look at the book of Job. God and Satan both know Job's health, Job's kids, Job's welfare. That's not the deal. We're talking about something else beneath that. Where does Job stand with you, God? They both think that. Job does not. This is our problem. We need to see the real battle behind the battle, that none of these things that we're fighting over are ultimate. There's something else that's more important behind that. They are the context for the real fight. The real threat is the threat to your firm faith in Christ. That's what matters. That is what is of greater worth than gold. Peter already told us that. You've got to come to see life like this or you'll be forever fighting the wrong battles against the wrong enemies, flesh and blood battles political, economic battles, health battles. I'm not saying we don't engage in those things. I'm saying we realize what's going on behind those things and give our focus to where it should be. The great irony is that when you do that, that's actually the recipe to peace. If we live on this level, if we live fighting this battle, focus on this battle, then our peace or our angst is determined by the circumstances here. But when you realize something else that's going on, when you realize the battle is about your faith in Christ, then ironically, that gives you a perspective that brings you peace and joy and rest because it frees you to fight a battle that you are certain you can win. regardless of what the enemy does. 
Not this battle, this battle. You can win losing up here. You can win dying of terminal cancer or of a beheading. The book of Revelation assumes that. That all the saints in Revelation triumph by dying. Because they held on. You can win. You can win the real battle. Homeless and broke and ostracized. Because the real battle is not actually up to them or him. It rests in your hands. They can't control, he can't control whether or not you believe. This is the point of verse 9. The, the, the command of resist him, firm in your faith. That, that's a command to us, telling us we have something to do. It's not going to just happen automatically if we don't do something. But it's also saying you can resist him. You can hold him off, this adversary. He wants to, he comes at you, he throws all the threats at you, all, all of the pains at you, and he, and he says, to, again, echo Job, he wants you to look at all of that, see it all, and curse God and die. But what's in your hands, Christian, that he cannot make happen, what's in your hands is, verse 9, Resist him firm in your faith. There's a part of you, Christian, that is drawn to what, he's, what he throws at you, what he threatens you with. There's a part of you that, that is enticed by that. But the verse 9 command says, but here's how you respond. Firm in your faith, you say no. Now, the next point is going to be about how do you say no? What do you do? So I haven't said everything I'm going to say about that. I've got more to say in the second point. But it's worth hovering over this here for a second. I think, I think, at least for me, check it for yourself. When I work through eight and nine, I work through eight, and there is a sense of dread of serious danger here. And then I come to nine and I say, wait a minute. We, we really are dealing with, I can win. You, Christian, you can win. You have a terrible adversary. But greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. You actually can win this battle if you will fight. Resist him firm in the faith. If you will resist firm in your faith, which tells us there's a body of faith, there's a body of Christian truth that has to be firmly held on to, trusted in. And that's in your hands not his. He cannot make you let go of that. He cannot make you not believe that. 
He can invite you and lure you and tempt you. But you can resist him. You can resist him. So fight. The problem with Christians is A, we don't notice the battle, or B, we don't fight. That's the two commands here. Notice the battle, fight. Fight how? Firm in your faith by holding on to my faith. So, do you notice the battle beneath all the other battles? And will you fight it? Okay, here's how. Second point then. Firm faith is fed by setting our minds on God's promises of grace. Firm faith is fed by setting our minds on God's promises of grace. So verse 9 has this command to resist the devil's attack. Firm in your faith. But the sentence doesn't end right there. It, it, if it did, it, we'd still have something there. But, but all we'd have is, I, I'm supposed to, I guess, keep believing firmly. Yes, that would be something. But he gives us more help. He, he kind of tells us a little bit more about what it is we are to be firmly believing. There's some things we are to set our minds upon. Our eyes will certainly feel, see a, a world that's, that's full of all kinds of trouble. So verse 9 says, stand firm, knowing, set your minds on, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings, not all the exact same sufferings, the same kinds of sufferings, all of our lives are a little bit different across space and time, but all the same kinds of things, nothing's unique really, Come at us, all of our brothers and sisters throughout the world and across time have also seen and walked in. The church with a capital C has always seen what you're seeing and always walked this path. So catch this perspective and what Peter's doing here and why he thinks this is helpful to us. We encounter an affliction or a trial, and it seems overwhelming, and pretty soon one of the thoughts that begins to rise up in us is, how, this is going to crush me. How, how do I make it? How do I do this? I can't. And along comes someone else who says, well, I faced that. Here's how it went. Here's what I did. And both their saying and their very existing testifies to you it can be endured. This guy made it through. Actually, a whole bunch of other people have made it through. A bunch of other people made it through. And so there's something that, that's really encouraging about and perhaps helpful if the person tells you what they thought about or what they did or what course they pursued. There's something that's helpful, but it's at least encouraging. I realize that no temptation is coming against me that is not common to man. And it can be endured. This person's presence says so. There is something that is encouraging about that here. 
Your brotherhood around the world is experiencing this too. There's also, though, a sense of camaraderie, your brotherhood, the family. With all the brothers and sisters of the church, any, any trial, any trial that is particularly hard and challenging is easier to endure linked arm in arm with somebody who cares about you. That's true. And it's harder alone. And what he's trying to do is put the whole body around us and say, all your brothers and sisters, everyone, we've all shared this, we're sharing it even right now alike in common with you, in common with Christ himself, in fact, who walked the path before you. He's the head of the church. He stepped into this too. He experienced the same sort of sufferings. So realize this is common. This is par for the course and you are in it with a bunch of people who care about you, most particularly Jesus himself. If the world rejected him, it is going to reject you. If Satan hunted him into the deprivations of the wilderness, and if Satan hunted him through the venom of Pharisees and through the deceit of close friends, he's going to hunt you in the same way. And he made it through, and he's with you, caring for you. Set your mind on that. You're not in this alone. Jesus himself walks with you, as does the rest of his body. So take heart. And take heart in particular that he has overcome all of the world. I'm reading this passage, and I told you eight brings me foreboding, and, and then nine brings me some, some resolve. And, and by the time I get to 10, 11, and, and let me just plead with you, let yourself do this. By the time I get to 10, 11, I just go, go and what, I, the, what I'm picturing in my mind is, is like the curtains just part. Because I look down here and I see, I see some battle and what you're telling me is that I need to see the battle beneath the battle, that there's something, there's, there's someone who's lying in the weeds. Yeah, okay, but now, now do this. And neither this nor this becomes, is, is material anymore. Let yourself go there. 10 and 11. The same sorts of sufferings are, are common to us as common to all Christians. We're in this together, yep. And after you have suffered a little while, that's some pretty vague timing, isn't it? A little while. How long is that? Uh, God knows. And God decides. Maybe like Job, it's an intense attack for some years. Maybe it's low grade for all of your life, probably both. But there is an end to it. We can hear, we're looking here and realize there is an end to it. When God deems it to be over, and God has some promises about that end, the God of all grace, oh, 
when my heart begins to go, oh. I'm, I'm focused on the pain and the suffering, and I'm looking at the, at the danger and the threat, and I'm trying to hold on tight, and then I get the God of all grace. What a beautiful name for a Lord. Let your mind run after that name, past all the fear and the pain and the struggle of the battle. Behold your God, the God of all grace. A name about fullness of good, about measureless, measureless, undeserved kindness towards you. This is at the heart of what is so glorious about him. It ends with a point, he has dominion. But what he calls himself is not the God of all dominion, it's the God of all grace. This is so much who he is. It's so much at his core that he, feel, he sees fit right here to make himself known as this, the God of all grace. He's the God of all good, none of which is deserved, but all of which is his all and is overflowing out of him. Grace. He has shown great grace to us by doing something for us in the gospel. You know the gospel, right? Yeah, of course you know. Think of the gospel. The God of all grace sent God the Son to earth as a man according to the plan and desire of the God of all grace. And he sent him, sent him to hunt the hunter. You and me, the wilderness, let's go. Name the time, name the place, I'm there. Jesus was a stud. Have you ever... I say this carefully because this is real. Have you ever seen the terror of the darkness? At sometimes I think I have seen some of that when I have been in the dark and have been afraid to look in that corner, to look over there. And I have felt and I have I have there is a foreboding that is not little child afraid of the dark, is adult man afraid of the dark. Because there's something there. And Jesus said, let's go. That's why I'm here, to talk to you. For you. Jesus went into the wilderness to hunt the hunter. Come at me. Attack. Go ahead. See my firm faith. Come on. Use the afflictions of the world. Use the temptations of glory and power that are being deprived of me. Come at me. Who won? Why? Because the God of all grace sent him to fight that fight. So that when the God of all grace sent him to the cross, there was a righteousness to give to you, a victory to give to you. That when he hangs on the cross and defeats the hunter by being killed, what he secures for you is a victory 
a righteous declaration of not guilty, and then a power given to you that, so that you can resist. That's what the God of all grace did for you. That is grace upon grace to declare you not guilty, to give you a victory. But that's not even the end of it. There's more. God did that in the gospel and did more than that in the gospel. He united you with Christ. He put you in Jesus. We've talked about this a bunch. But realize there's no reason that he had to automatically do that. He could have just been he made you forgiven, made you righteous in his eyes, and then just kind of left you as like a nice friend, a neighbor. But no, he joined you into himself, put you in Christ. And that means something. In these words here, it means that in Christ, united with Christ, you have been called to, called into his eternal glory. That's what Peter writes here. Look at that. That's not just another way of saying heaven. I called you into heaven. God's eternal glory is in heaven. It's what makes heaven heavenly. It's what makes the new heaven and the new earth a place you want to live, really. It makes it glorious and awesome and full and whole and deep. It makes it a place of shalom. Why? Because God's majestic beauty, what is most majestic and most beautiful about him is grace. It fills the whole realm. God called you in Christ to that. Put you to live in that like a sponge in a sink. It's surrounded by the water. It's full of the water. The sponge never becomes the water. We never become divine. We remain forever creatures who live in, who soak in the glorious grace of God and are filled with it. We live in a realm where all we know is the glory of God's grace and that's what fills us fully as creatures forever. All that we'll ever know is the kindness and the goodness of God. All because the God of all grace called us to that in Christ. We have a little part of that now. You have the Spirit as a down payment filling you now. Just a little bit. And it's good. But what's coming is fullness. God promises that's coming. And when it does, this is what else we'll experience. The verse continues he himself will restore all that's been broken around us. Tons broken around us. In us. He'll restore all that's been lost. He'll restore. He himself will confirm all that was taken and questioned and undercut and attacked, God will say yes to. And he himself will strengthen. Weakened and wounded and sick and hurt, no more. He himself will establish everything that was undercut 
compromised. He'll place us on a rock and we will never be moved or ruined or even ever tempted again. In other words, set your mind on this. God will deem it right that you suffer for a little while. How long? Not sure. Lots of reasons. Read the book of Job for some. We may never know why, though, in particular. But we do know this, that we are promised that the God of all grace has called us to live in and experience one day all that is glorious and good about him. Trouble will last for a time, but joy will come in the morning and it will come in spades. It'll come in a tidal wave and it will fill you and you'll never know anything other. I myself will make it so, he says. All of his awesome might is committed to do this and he's the one who has dominion forever and forever and forever and forever. That's what we have to know and set our minds on and hold firm to. You've got to see that. So in the end, ultimately, you don't even focus on this, certainly not this. You don't even focus on the battle beneath the battle. You fight the battle beneath the battle and deal with this by saying, show me your glory. And he says, behold the cross and the empty tomb. I'm the God of all grace. And in dominion, I will deliver you. I promise. We are people who live off of that and must preach that to ourselves constantly until it makes us, until it makes you new. Hold firm to that, Christian, and you will be fine in the fight. And you will walk with the saints in the glory. Let me pray. God, help us. We need you to do this in us. You were in us and you were great and you were good. And so help. Help your people. Help us to believe you and to walk with you. And those who are not your people, Lord, would you call them in and show them the beauty of yourself and of your promises and the hope that you are for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.